At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Footmox podcast. I'm your host, Behram Kazi. You can find me at Def Mango on Twitter. And with me, of course, is Jared Kimber. As always, you can find him everywhere. And today's topic actually is, well, the title of the show is Selecting Basil because we'll be talking about Basil D'Oliveira. Of course, if you follow Jared's work, he's done like a marathon piece on this, a documentary style video on it as well. And obviously, Jared, it's a very heavy piece to write given the racial connotation and relevance of the subject matter, you know, with respect to our sport and the world at large. So was this something that you had wanted to write about for quite a while at length? Or was it like an epiphany that happened and you were like, okay, there's my inspiration and I need to go and write about this. I think when Black Lives Matter happened, I wanted to do hmm. something about racing cricket um, uh-huh. on Double Century. So it's like a, there's like a five-part series on racing cricket uh, for Double Century, you know, explaining the, the racial term we have for left arm wrist spinners, uh, hmm. you know, talking about the South African stuff, talking about, you know, black players who played for Australia that hadn't, don't get talked about, um, you know, all, all these sorts of different issues that had happened uh, up until Darren Sammy complaining about some of his treatment um, mm. even. And, but I was inspired at the start by, I knew it wanted, I wanted it to be about Basil D'Oliveira because it was such a big part of race in cricket. Uh-huh. But also I figured that, and I'd read Peter Oborn's book and I read Rich Evans's article in the Night Watchman uh, magazine. Mm-hmm. I think it was in Night Watchman. Um, and I, I realized that I had a unique viewpoint because I'm a historian and I'm a right. feature writer, but I'm also an analyst. I've been in selection meetings, right? I've had to select hmm. people for their country. I've had to select people for franchise leagues. You know, I've been involved in those conversations before. And most people are just like, just on a normal level, right? Oh, I am. Um, uh, Harry Brooks should be in the side. Who should be in the side for? I don't know. He should just be in the side. <laughs> That's not how selection works. Chahal should be in the side. Ashwin should be in the side. Who are they going to be in the side for? What, how, does the, how does the pattern work? How does the lineup work? All these sorts of different things. You know, what conditions, et cetera, and et cetera. And what have the other guys done? 
quite honestly. And so I, that's how I think. And, and I thought that is the best way of proving the politics of the situation, right? Of the, right. the blatantness of, of the politics is if we can actually go through this correctly. And I'd always been struck by something that Peter Oborn had said that he didn't think it was a terrible selecting decision to not put mm. Basil Dolivera in there. And I was like, I want to go through that. And so we did it for Double Century. And then w- I always wanted to turn that into a video just on the selecting bit, not all the other racial mm-hmm. bits, but just on the selecting bit into something on 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 that. Um, and so I went and researched it again and found some other things that I didn't hadn't noticed the first time and everything else. And it, it, yeah, I really, I want this to sit beside what Rich Evans wrote and what Peter Oborn did and, you know, some of the documentaries that have been made on him. So it was supposed to be a very deep, look at something but from one particular angle because that's the bit where i am the expert true true and of course we'll get into all of that fun stuff but just a bit of a you know recap for people who don't know who basil Oliveira was he was uh, born in south africa he played cricket but the whole apartheid situation meant that he couldn't play for his country or play amongst the best players within his country because of the color of his skin made a few calls to england somehow landed letters, in league cricket letters. Letters. Yeah, no. sorry. We yeah. wrote a few letters <laughs> to people in England. Of course, there were no calls. Or if they were, they were way he, above Basil's He wouldn't have been able to get access yeah. to like an international phone, probably, half the time. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, well, those letters worked for him because he landed himself in league cricket, performed for four years, made his first-class debut, and the next thing you know, he was playing for England. So even though the selection that you say changed the world hadn't happened yet, he was part of a selection that had challenged the world, right? Because mm. he was a South African who couldn't play in South Africa playing for England and England is the birthplace of cricket. So that's quite big on its own even before all the drama. The fact that he played test cricket should would be on its own one of the biggest... In fact, it's, it's underplayed in his story just because mm. obviously it is because of everything that follows. But you're right. It's one of the... You know, it's up there with Afghanistan, um, mm. you know, uh, making it to the World Cup, right? It's... It's one of the biggest things that ever happened to cricket. He wasn't the first non-white, non-English-born player, of course, to play. There have been a couple of Indian players before him at that point. But the fact that he, they had come from situations where they did had money, wealth, or cricket backgrounds. He, he. So he, I don't know if you know this because I don't know how much you know about South Africa, but he's not actually considered black in South Africa. Did you know that? Mm. He's, yeah. He's considered Cape Coloured, which is. A horrible term, but it's what they use themselves, uh, people from mm. that area, that part of the world. And it's, I think they're of Malay ancestry, but there's obviously it's mm. now a mixture of Malay and, and also some black and probably some Asian, um, uh, her- or other kinds of Asian heritages in there as well, would be my guess. Um, and, but even so, he didn't have access to anything else. So the best level of cricket he would play against would have been a, a club cricket really, hmm. but it would have been a club cricket where a good deal of the best cricket is not available on terrible wickets, um, right. you know, in not good situations. So to go from that to arriving in England when you're already probably quite old, playing club cricket in England and then being seen as a slogger because you're hmm. playing. To, and he would have, of course, he would have slogged there. He was bored out of his mind. He was so much better than anyone he'd ever <laughs> played with. I'm sure he probably played his shots all the time. Yeah. Then, you know, there was a problem with, 
uh, where he was going to play first-class cricket because in those days he wasn't born in the counties and you had mm-hmm. to live in the counties or marry someone from the counties in some cases. Like there are different r- rules and regulations for each team and, you know, the whole uh, Yorkshire one is one of the more famous ones, but a lot of teams had that. You know, ends up at Derbyshire and then within – this is – everything took so long. And then for it only take two years after he starts playing first-class cricket to actually play test cricket, it's the first time really that anything moves quickly for him. And it's remarkable. And, you know, you've got to imagine what it was like for him being, uh, you know, uh, a non-white person from South Africa in England. His first yeah. thing was he couldn't believe that there were all these uh, white people doing, you know, manual labor jobs and stuff. And he asked what change room he should be sitting in because he didn't <laughs> think he should be in this change room with a normal team and all this sort of stuff. Everything's happening so fast. And to go from that to being a test cricketer for England is absolutely extraordinary. But there's no doubt that he was worthy of uh, playing for England. Yeah, no, there's and lots South of Africa perspective probably. over there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think so. And, you know, that's some great perspective because we see these movies in Hollywood where people go to America or the West and they have this whole culture shock. This would be a different kind of culture shock because he would have had an inferiority complex himself mm-hmm because he was treated like a third-class citizen in South Africa. But anyway, let's focus on Basil the Cricketer. I want to talk about his record a bit, because he played 44 tests in six years, at that time where you wouldn't have as much test cricket. And he was, you know, playing a lot. And that's quite a phenomenal number for someone who wasn't even young anymore. He was quite Mm. old at that point where he finally made his debut. And of course, a plus batter, as you mentioned in your piece, he averaged 40 batting in the lower middle order. And uh, five to seven batters at the time were averaging around 30 all top seven batters were averaging around 36. So he was four above that as well. And with the ball, you know, wasn't anything special. Just bowled a bit of medium pace. Wasn't sexy at all. But averaged more than a wicket uh, per test. And also was very, very frugal. I checked up his economy and it was Lance Gibbs level. 1.95. Yeah. Which is phenomenal, right? So how would you rate him as an overall cricketer? Yeah, I, I suppose he... I mean, depending on how you feel about Shane Watson, he has a better batting average than Shane Watson. Um yeah. Worst bowling average, but uh, but probably uh, a similar kind of impact to late Shane Watson when Shane Watson wasn't taking a lot of wickets but couldn't be hit off the square. So he's probably more like what Shane Watson was at the end. Um, you know, we could definitely consider Shane Watson a, a good cricketer. Um, and yeah, you know, and and Basil was very attacking as well. You know, uh, counter attacking kind of player would score boundaries a lot. Uh, very good off the back foot specifically. Um, mm. Uh, you know, maybe that's the South African uh, in, uh, part of his game. Um, but, yeah, he was, a, he was a very, very good cricketer. I think had he played when he was younger, I can't even imagine how good he would have been because there's mm. no doubt that he probably got into a lot of bad habits by playing mm. against people who weren't as good as him. Um I think he was probably quicker when he was younger as well. From the st- I don't think he was ever express, but I think he was quicker. He was very slow. By the time he was bowling in test cricket, yeah. he, you know, incredibly slow, medium pacer. But he wasn't always that kind of bowler. Um, and you also see, he, he plays on into the 70s, and you can see that his athleticism is complete. He looks like an old man playing at, at mm. the end of his career. And you're talking about someone who was a phenomenal athlete when he was young. So... Um, we did, if you think about the fact that we didn't see the best of him, he didn't train correctly, he wasn't in the best conditions, and he was still a Shane Watson-level player, um, mm. that tells you a lot of, of the talent that he must have had. Oh, no, absolutely. When you think of it from that perspective, it's actually quite phenomenal that he achieved what he achieved. 
And uh, you obviously mentioned the Old Trafford Ashes Test of 1968 in your piece. It was the first test of that Ashes series. Fun Ashes series. We'll get into all of that fun stuff in a bit. But his performance in that test was a very, very good one, right? For someone who would average just over a wicket per test, he took two in that one mm-hmm. and only gave away 45 runs. So, you know, when England, or sorry, Australia was scoring 400 plus, he wasn't the one leaking those runs, right? And then come fourth innings when England are chasing 413, I think, was it? And, you know, they're in a pickle. England still lose by 150-odd, right? But he scores 87, you know, in the fourth innings on the last day. England still end up losing and it wasn't a you know, uh, performance that got talked up a lot, but he ends up at, as England's batting player of the match. Gets dropped right after that, right? Why do you feel that is? I think the one thing you didn't mention was at the end of that summer, they were playing South Africa. All oh, right. Very and, important thing to mention. And I think that by that stage, the pressure was getting to the MCC. Hmm. I think what you would say is he had a good stats, low impact game, right? Hmm. But part of yeah. the reason he had low impact was because they picked him as one of their four frontline bowlers. And as we've just said, by the time he got to test cricket, his bowling was, he was probably a sixth bowler by the time he got to test cricket. You know, mm. it's, it's the 50th over, the 60th over, and you need to get through a couple of uh, balls before the new ball. You chuck it to him and he doesn't get hit off the square and maybe he nicks off someone along the way. That's the best case scenario of his bowling at that point to suddenly think that he was going to be the fourth best bowler against a fairly decent Australian batting lineup is mm. idiotic. And so he had good stats, low impact on, on the game, but that 87 not out was on a tough pitch against a, a team that was completely on top. The only chance that England even had of a draw or a win or any kind of positive thing was when he was batting and it wasn't his mm. fault. The rest of the team went out. I just can't imagine too many situations where you would drop a player like that at that time. What we have to say is that he'd failed in the previous series and they brought him back for this series. Sorry, kept him in the team for this series. So there's two things to worry about that are interesting there. One is if you thought he was going to be good enough and you need it and, um, and that's why you kept him for that first test and then he makes 87, why is that the situation where you drop him? Um, But the other one was that maybe they just thought he had such little impact in the game, partly because of the way they used him, um, that there was no point playing in the next game. But I think, I can't think of too many players who were averaging, I think he was averaging 44 at that stage in test cricket and could bowl a little bit. You can't, how many times would that player be dropped? I don't think very often, but that's where it gets more confusing, right? Because the Mm. the next, they don't just make one change, they make five changes. And they right. are in panic mode because they've lost that first test. And Ken Barrington comes in, and he's obviously one of the greatest batters of all time. Uh, Colin Milburn comes in, despite the fact they already had two openers, why they needed a third o- opener, Bayram, I'll <laughs> never quite understand. Uh, they change the dynamics. They swap him with a, uh, with a bowling all-rounder. Um, so they do one extra bowling in the side. Even with everything I've just said, it do- the Colin Milburn one is the one I don't quite understand, unless they were just unsure of their top order. Um, but that's, they make those decisions and they drop him. And there's no doubt that politics are already involved because mm. he's already had, um, uh, was it Swanton or Cardis? Whichever, I always get those two confused. But one of the old um, uh, MCC um, uh, cricket journalists slash MCC. Swanson. Swanson, yeah. Come up to him and tell him not to tour. 
Um, mm. And also the weirdest thing is that Doug Insole, the head selector, comes up to him and introduces <laughs> him to a South African businessman who says, oh, you'll be fine <laughs> if you come over. Thanks, selector. That's a weird thing to do. So clearly there's, you know, other things going on. But from a cricket yeah. perspective, it's n- I don't think you would drop a player in this situation very often. Um, and on top of that, he was mis- badly used anyway. So surely you would reshuffle the side, use him better for the next game and shore up the other problems that you had in the eleven. Yeah, and the Colin Milburn thing in particular, like to draw a parallel with Pakistan playing Shan Masood at four in the T20 World Cup. The, the anchor after the anchors. Wait. But um, anyway, coming to Basil being dropped and the guy who replaced him, oh well, quote unquote, you know, uh, yeah, I came think into his, or landed into his shoes was Barry Knight. Now, this is a guy who doesn't bat as well as uh, Basil and uh, he obviously is a better bowler. Did well with the ball. He took a three for, but when Australia were already three down for 23 and then came and scored an unbeaten 27 when England were already 270 odd for five, I believe. Mm. So he had a good game, even that Wikipedia sort of uh, line that you extracted and put in your piece that, you know, uh, Barry Knight played really well or something along the lines. But then again, you know, Knight was also kind of discarded after, you know, the third test because Mm -hmm. he wasn't played as a bowling all-rounder this time. He was played in the Basel role as a batting all-rounder and he failed. And that was it for him. He was dropped. So, England were playing Basil D'Oliveira as their fourth seamer. He should never have been in yeah. that role, right? He was a batting all-rounder. He was more of like a, well, it's unfair to compare him to Callis, but, you know, you get the drift. And he was yeah. bowling more overs than Callis, as you mentioned in the piece. So, you feel like they were maybe perhaps setting him up, setting him up for failure? Or was that just well, very, very weak analysis? Well, I think, I think they... It's, this is why it's so confusing, because England have 20 players in, in five tests. Mm. Like yeah. they really shit the bed in this series. Mm-hmm. And so you look at Barry Knight. I think Barry Knight's test match, while it had more to do with England being good in that second game, was statistically more or less as the same as Basil's was in the first mm-hmm. game, right? But Barry was used in the proper way. He was, you know, batted down the order. It wasn't a great bat, but he held he didn't go out, you know, in that mm-hmm. sort of classic, I don't know, Ashley Giles type. Um, number eight kind of batting style, yeah. right? And, and England didn't lose, right? Yeah, they drew yeah the exactly. He batted number seven, not number mm. eight. But you know what I mean? That's that's all he did. He just hung around, which mm. allowed them to score a little bit more runs, which, which eventually helped them, you know, draw that test. Then he took the three wickets when Australia was collapsing. So, you know, from that perspective, he had a decent game. And then he gets used out of position in the next game <laughs> and is suddenly, he's thought of as a top six batter. Where there's, I mean, I can't think of, too many situations in post-World War II cricket where a guy averaging 26 in first-class cricket is going to be asked to bat at number 26, right? You know, there's some bad teams that have had it. I mean, this was not a bad team, right? Yeah. I mean, we just said Ken Barrington was in it. Basil Dolavira was in it. Colin mm-hmm. Milburn. This, Graveney was in it, right? Um, there was a lot of talented players around. Was Boycott? Did Boycott play in yeah, that series? Yeah, he was yeah, in that Boycott. series. Dennis Didn't Amos. play all the test matches. Yeah, Dennis Amos yeah, played. Dennis Amos was, John Snow, was Derek there. Underwood. Like... This is not mm-hmm. a team where you need a bloke who averages 26 for the bat, batting at number six, right? And yeah. so you look at that and you do start to think to yourself, well, was Basil sold out in that first test hmm. or did they fuck up? Because they did the same thing with Barry Knight in the third test and then Barry Knight gets dropped, right? Yeah. And so it, that's where the whole selection thing becomes way more confusing because they are making so many calls and decisions. 
right? Mm. And so suddenly you don't really know where that is going to go. So I, I, yeah. find, I, I find that really, really fascinating from that point of view. I still don't think Basil Dolivera should have been dropped, but mm. clearly if they're playing 20 players in that series, there's bigger issues here than just that one decision. Yeah, amidst all of that selection chaos that's happening in the Ashes series, you know, the MCC called up or contacted, not called up, wrote to them. I'm sorry for making that blunder once again. That one might have been called up by then because it was Mm -hmm. local calls at least. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Well, at least they contacted. uh, Yeah, (laughs) Telegram or whatever. The top 30 cricketers who were, or they deemed as top 30 cricketers in England to, you know, uh, prompt them whether or not they were available for the South African tour that, that was coming up in yeah, the winter. We, we do that for the World Cups now, don't we? We have the yeah. probables list. Exactly. The provisionals and Provisional, the probables sorry, and all yeah. that sort of stuff, right? Basil D'Oliveira wasn't contacted. And at that time, like you mentioned, he was averaging 44 and his last innings was an 87 not out on a fourth, uh, uh, in a fourth innings mm. on a, on a f- day five pitch. That is harrowing and that's kind of what confirms the notion that politics definitely was at play here not, we're not sure to what extent, but definitely to an extent big enough that he wasn't contacted as part of those 30 players, someone who had done so well for England in the recent past, barring that West Indian tour. Yeah, and the, one other thing I want to add here is that at this point, first-class cricket was way more important. So hmm. test cricket, this is the first generation where test cricket is better than counter cricket all the time, right? Hmm. And so up until that point, you know, first-class cricket was was still really important. and And he had struggled. So he gets dropped, Basil, and he goes back. And I can't remember how many games he played for Worcester, but it would be a ton because they used to play about 30 games mm-hmm. a year. Um, and he averages 12, I think, in the games during the second, third, and fourth test. But as you said, he was still averaging 44. He'd still made 87 in the last game. He could bowl a little bit. He's also South African. I know this. I didn't put this into the video, but it's not that he was used to playing it at um, – any of the South African grounds, but he is used to South African conditions, right? He right. Never, would never have played of any of the test venues, but he knows how to play in South Africa, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you factor all those things in and, it, and, and then he's not in the 30. That's at the point where you cannot, you can't claim anymore that it's a form thing or anything else. I think at that stage you have to say that they have decided that it will be bad politically um, to pick him. And so he's no longer in that situation. Hmm. So now, come fifth test, Colin Cowdery, the captain of England at the time. Of course, England, just to give a bit of context, are still 1-0 down in this hmm. series. And he wants Basil back in the eleven. His options are, of course, Basil D'Oliveira. And he's more keen on the medium pace that he bowl, uh, that yeah. he offers. With, as opposed to the batting prowess that Basil had. And other options, of course, are Barry Knight, who we spoke of earlier, and Tom Cartwright. And you speak of Tom Cartwright as this county cricket legend, right? Yeah. Who was averaging 19, took like nearly 1,600 wickets, but, you know, was just okay with the bat and hadn't done well in South Africa. But we'll come to that later. Yeah, but that, anyway, that's, Tom that's Cartwright, the next part of him, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But yeah Tom so- Cartwright, Barry Knight, and Basil were the options. And, you know... They, he went for Basil and after being no, dropped think, several times. I think what happened was that, hmm. so he, yeah, it, the oval pitch, he thought medium pace would be quite handy on it. And uh-huh. then what actually happens is that Barry Knight is injured. So he misses the fourth test, hmm. but then is injured um, for the, when he should be playing in the fifth test. And then Tom Cartwright is also injured. So okay, I think they were all brought 
if they were all brought in or they were contacted before Basil. But either way, yeah, you're right. So he's brought back in, but he's only supposed to be in the squad as cover um, mm. from a bowling perspective. That So he's legitimately brought back in because he can bowl medium pace at the Oval. And then, of course, what happens is that Roger Prideaux, who I know that you, you, you want to talk Do you want to explain what happens with Roger Prideaux or do you want me to? I mean, you can go for it. He scored, what, 60-odd, right, in the previous test? Yeah, so he makes runs in the fourth test. I, don't, I can't remember what his first-class batting average is, but he was the sort of mm. guy that in that era that had so many great players, he probably knew that mm. he was fringe player and that everything would have to go right. He was desperate to tour South Africa. I think it's mm. Peter Oborn's book that talks about the fact that the story is that Roger Prideaux made 60 and thought, well, I'm now the opener and I've got that position, mm. but if I fail at the Oval... I won't ah. get the I won't get in the squad to South Africa. And look, t- players have done this all through history. It still happens mm. now. Whether it's true or not, we don't know. But he pulls out. Now, of course, when he pulls out, they have a spare batter in the squad, right? Yeah. So it makes sense to just bring Brazil Dolivera in rather than bringing someone else um, in to play sure. that game. And so the guy who was picked as a medium pace backup is now in the side as a batter, and mm. uh, and then. You know, uh, they they need to win this test. It's a very very important Absolutely. situation, and I think I should, I'm trying to remember. You probably you read it today. I should should remember it because I only finished it yesterday. But they mm. Australia batted first, and made three hundred odd. Does that sound right? Yep. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Yeah, and then what what's the score when Basil comes in? It's about five for two uh, two fifty for five ish. Mm-hmm. He comes in at a comfortable score. Yeah, he comes in at a comfortable that. score, but they're not in front. I think is the important uh-huh. thing there. So they're still a little yeah. bit behind, um, a little bit of batting behind him at, at that point. And he has to make it to stumps. So he gets a tricky session to make it to stumps. Mm. The interesting thing is that he'd been playing really ordinary, as we said, with Worcester until he didn't make that 30-man squad. And there was a lot of pressure on him. He turned to drinking. He wasn't the athlete he was before. The West Indian mm. players had called him a sellout for playing with a white team. Mm-hmm. And he struggled in that West Indies series. I think it's... I, my, I can't remember if it happens at the exact same time, but it does feel like he gets batting form back just as he misses out on that 30 squad. Whether we'll be able to work out whether that that's a coincidence or whether it had something to do with it, obviously we'll never know. But he is feeling a little, little bit more, more confident. So he plays a bunch of big shots against Australia, gets through the stumps 20-odd not out, comes out the next day, a little bit more tentative the next day, gets mm. an edge behind to Barry Jarman. So Barry Jarman is a very famous person in Australian cricket, but not someone that's really known outside of Australian cricket. And he's very famous for the fact that he was a specialist wicketkeeper and virtually only a wicketkeeper. That's all he could do. He averaged yeah, four, you, you 14. You mentioned he averaged 14, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, just just a guy who who never made any runs. But I, I actually, I, I looked far and wide to find some footage of him. Um, and I mm. couldn't see, I, I found him doing a stumping. I, I wasn't even stumping, it was a run out. Um, uh, but I just couldn't find anything of him, um, uh, of him wicket keeping. But you know the stories are incredible. By the way, his full name is Barrington Noel Jarman, the least Australian uh-huh. name ever. So they had to bury him <laughs> up. Um, but 191 first class games, uh, t- an average of 22 500s, mm. definitely in the side, 100% for his wicket keeping, and yet he's dropped this catch, and. Mm-hmm. He's the least likely person on that ground to drop a catch, even with or without the gloves, right? He's just the least likely right. person to do that. And it's almost like cricket wants Basil Dolivera to make runs. And I think he's dropped mm-hmm. once or two other times, but he eventually finds his flow. 
I'm, there's, a, a, there's a feature very fe- feature film in this definitely yeah. I don't know why someone hasn't made it yet but I don't know um, one of those new brown guys in Hollywood could play him Kumar Kumail Nanjiani or, or, or the guy in Big Bang Theory I don't know there's so many guys who could potentially play that role but it's interesting because after those that drop catch and other several drop catches he goes on and makes a ton yeah and, and it's now not, and, and he's flying mixed, right? at that point too like he does yeah. start to take over which which is what you know the narrative that's what that's when the music would start to swell in fact there's a beautiful exactly. moment when the there's a former cricketer who's the umpire who whispers yeah. in his ear i think it, i think it was when he goes past 50 where he says oh you're mm-hmm. gonna you're gonna cause some trouble here i can't remember the words yeah. it might happen in front of you but he yeah, you know, yeah, he says that, something along those lines of you're, you're gonna, gonna cause a lot of problems you're gonna cause a lot of problems lines. that's it charles elliott um yeah. and it's all it's all movie. It is a mm. cinematic moment, and then he goes on, and you see him. He met when I, I can't remember. If, I don't know if it's whether he makes his hundred or his hundred. Uh, does he make one fifty? I'm trying to remember his final score. I I can't remember the full score, but I do remember you mentioning that it wasn't his best hundred, not not most his most fluid hundred, no. very dodgy. But England won the test. They drew they the did. ashes, and he gets in front. This was a slap in the face of South Africa apartheid, right? Because here he is, Basil Dolivera at the ashes, the biggest. You know, uh, platform in cricket at that point because there's no ODI cricket at that point, right? He actually played an ODI, but yeah, it's about two, three years after he plays the ODI. The, the fir- yeah. he played, I think he plays in the first ODI. So yeah, no, you're right. It, it's huge. He wins the test. He gets Bill Laurie out. You know, one of the most famously hard to dismiss batters in world cricket. You know, the corpse with pads they used to call him. Um, <laughs> helps them win the game. They come back from nowhere, like 20 players they used in that Ashes, and they've ended up, mm. you know, drawing the Ashes. Um, you know, it's a, it's a huge moment. And obviously at that stage, everyone's thinking, well, he, you know, he's back. And so he will go to South Africa. Then they have a selection meeting. And it's important to note, you know, that it's the MCC doing all this, but the MCC selected mm-hmm. the England team. There was no ECB or TCCB or any of those other uh, organisations at that stage. They get in a room together. Colin Cowdery has said that he wants Basil in the side. Yeah. I think he told Basil that. I don't think he said that publicly, although he might have told someone in the press that as well. Hmm. They have a meeting and allegedly no one at the meeting suggests that Basil Dolivera should be in the side. Everyone in yeah. that room, from what I can tell, suggested that they did not mention politics. I think it's Rich Evans that did the great research on, on this side of it. It's not what we would talk about for this piece because it is about the selection. But the point is that he's not that close to the side. Hmm. He doesn't get picked. They suggest that it's because he's not no longer an all-rounder, which is a remarkable thing to say when he was just brought into the squad as an all-rounder and the test before he had played, he had played as a frontline bowler. Yeah. Remarkable change of um, uh, decision-making there. Um, and he's not picked. And instantly everyone cries racism. Everyone says that they're sucking up to the South Africans. There's plenty of things about politics. And the day he made his 100, of course, they received a message from uh, South Africans saying, if you pick Basil Dolivera, the tour is off. So they knew exactly what would happen if they picked Basil Dolivera, and he wasn't in the squad. Um, And, you know, that is where, that's where it becomes an international incident. Up until this stage, Mm -hmm. it's a cricket story where you can find a couple of articles around the world, not that many in the newspapers. From that moment forward, it's front page news in Australia. It's front page news in New Zealand. It's front page news in other cricket nations around the world that I found. Hmm. It changes things instantly. Yeah, and it was a selection that came with a lot of politicized baggage. Of course, you mentioned in your piece that the South African Prime Minister was keeping tabs on Basil's performance. And, you know, he was very unequivocal in his dissent that 
uh, they, you know, the MCC or whoever should not be imposing this sort of thing. And they made it very clear that Basel wasn't welcome. And it was interesting because it was going against everything that that South African government stood up for, right? Mm -hmm. He was the antidote to that. And uh, well, he for proved, him to come and- He proved that apartheid yeah. was a lie, that it didn't yeah, make any sense. basically. And, and, that's, yeah, and that's the big issue, isn't it? That- the the black people and the and the non-white people and the, uh, you know cape colored and asian people and all those people couldn't do that in south africa but by going to england he actually proved mm. that the whole system was a joke right and if he came back like just imagine if, yeah. if he came back and he's facing peter pollock and peter pollock drops one short outside of some and he smacks it over point for four what does that say to everyone in south africa right that suddenly yeah. the lie that they all knew absolutely shatters Right, and they could yeah. not allow that the South African uh, politicians. I'm not sure if there is a hairier sport than cricket. From the early greats WG Grace and the Demon Fred Spotheth onwards, cricket has always been pursuit. Boom, Gooch and Dev with their upper lip work. Shoaib and Imran's incredible manes. Not to mention Lily's incredible chest rug. Our sport loves curated hair, and so does Manscaped. They just look after the bit that you can't see. So if you want a cricket-inspired downstairs pubic moustache... We can think of no item better than the Lawnmower 4.0 from Manscaped. Whether you're steaming in from the ladies' end or mounting a strenuous rear guard, always put your trust in Manscaped, who will look after your lower order. So go to manscaped.com and buy their kit with my red Inca code, all one word, and get yourself 20% off and make yourself 20% sexier. Absolutely. I mean, for Basil to come back to his, you know, native country, his homeland and play a test match representing England, first of all, smacking around their white cricketers and he's like this non-white hero. It's the messaging was something that they could obviously not have, you know, uh, bared. But it's interesting that at this point, you know, FIFA has banned South Africa. The Olympic Committee has banned South Africa. New Zealand are not playing cricket with South Africa anymore. And you also mentioned that the Imperial Cricket Conference, which is now the International Cricket Council, the ICC, <laughs> that only uh, was or constituted of England, Australia and South Africa. So there's more politics in this, right? Because that's one of the main three founding nations. And do you go against them? And do you select him even though, you know, we can always, we obviously talk about the cricketing side of things or whether or not he warranted selection. But the politics is geopolitical mm. and also within cricket's hierarchy. Well, I mean, the ICC was formed essentially by South Africans. It was, that's mm. why it was an empire thing. They, they pushed that specifically. Um, and there was a racial component to it. That's why mm. West Indies weren't brought in. I think that's right. Was it West Indies or India? Anyway, that's why the, the three first teams were white. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> that wasn't an accident. And so, yeah, um, you know, race and politics had always been involved in cricket for a long time at that point. And so, you know, the thought – and you have to understand how cricket was run. The people who ran it, you know, the reason that South African became a test nation is because white English people wanted to go on holiday to South Africa during the summer, <laughs> right? It's not an accident that South Africa get brought in. I don't think South Africa would have been – that much better than many other cricket. I mean, Ireland and the USA probably would have been mm -hmm. on a similar level to to South Africa at that time. Um, you know, we don't even know India and West Indies maybe would have been on a similar level. And mm -hmm. so th there was a decorum, right? You're an invited guest. Why would you bring someone who's not invited, right? And and I do, th and I know that sounds stupid, 
right? But these guys wanted to keep holidaying in South Africa every couple of years, watching mm-hmm. some cricket and getting special treatment and, you know, sitting in boards and eating fancy deal, meals and all that sort of stuff. Well, a lot of that would go away, right? And it did go away because, yeah. you know, once that happened. But if you think about it, it was absolutely an untenable situation for cricket to continue to play against South Africa, being that South Africa refused to play the West Indies, refused to play India, refused to play Pakistan. And when the apartheid came along, none of those teams wanted them anyway, right? They didn't want to play yeah. them anymore either. So it was, it was an untenable position. And so to pretend that it could keep going on was kind of stupid, Right. And, you know, yeah. other, some sports were ahead of cricket. Some sports were behind cricket. Some sports were ahead of cricket and then got behind cricket. It is a very, very complicated issue. But the truth is that if you can't take your best 15 players because another team is racist, and a similar thing happened, um, I think it's in the written piece um, I talked about. I didn't put it in the video about an Australian cricketer. I think his name is Graham Thomas. I want to say off the top of my mm-hmm. head, who there was rumors that he wasn't going to be allowed to go to South Africa because he had Native American blood in him, right? Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, and so you already had this situation where it had almost reared up once. And if they were if they were saying that they may not let Graham Thomas in, there's no way they were going to let Basil Dolorier in. And it was going to be the end of, at the very least, South Africa would have been down to playing one team. That's the best case scenario for them is that if they didn't play England this time, that was it. And they were basically, they were shadow banned at that point rather than fully banned. Fair enough. I mean, uh, of course, they deserve that. And uh, I mean, it's it's great that cricket had this moment because who's to say when that would have happened had Basil, you know, had that selection not come up. And of course, we'll get into that. But, you know, we expect the governments of the time to act the way they did. Let's even throw in the cricket administrators, mm-hmm. right? They were all party to that. But Colin Cowdery, who had mentioned mm-hmm. that he wanted Basil in his team, he did not back him either. He showed He showed no support. That must have been tough. Like, did we? Did you come across some accounts of Basil himself of what he was going through this time? Yeah, he, he, look, he he went through turmoil. That whole year was horrible on him, really. Mm. And you know, I know he was quite old anyway, but probably did age him. Uh, he did, as I said before, he got into drinking. Uh, he mm-hmm. wasn't handling the pressure very well. I mean, he was a fantastic batter and just didn't make any runs that year, right? Like these runs completely out, outside. The only runs he really made were in the two tests against Australia. And, you know, he started to get some form before that. But for him, he wasn't the player he normally was. And he's admitted, you know, quite a bit that it affected him. It's an impossible situation. You've got to also remember with Basil Dolavira that he's not a political man, right? Like he wasn't a, uh, you know, he, he wasn't some person who was out on the streets fighting or anything. He's just a guy like cricket. And, you know, for him, he just wanted to be able to play his cricket in peace. And because of who he was, that just wasn't available to him. Um, so, yeah, it definitely impacted him. And I, I think there's a story of when he gets, when he finds out he's not in the 15, you know, when the MCC decide not to take him on that in that squad, where he's mm. in tears. Um, and I don't think he's just in tears because he missed out on that squad. I think it's a culmination of he finally was accepted and he's still not accepted. I think it really is. He just can't. He, he. It doesn't matter what he does. There's always going to be a barrier to him. And look, so many non-white people in Western countries, and then non-white people in non-Western countries, you know, and people of minority, and you know, all those sorts of things. That's a that's a thing that they have to deal with. And you know, yeah. the difference between Basil Dolivier and everyone else is he happened to be one of the world's best people at one particular thing and wasn't allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. And so we know their name, but he's the face of many faceless people, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's why this story is all 
too relevant and why I think it would make for a great movie. And if we have a movie on rugby, South Africa's rugby team and exactly. Matt Damon is starring in it, right? You you mentioned that this definitely deserves to have a movie. But anyway, coming back to the selection and you obviously present the whole political you know, dynamic. But of course, there's the cricketing element of this as well. And Basil was up against a young, exciting Keith Fletcher, who wasn't quite at Basil's level with the bat, but, you know, he had time on his hands. And Basil at this point was, however old Shahid Afridi is right now, let's yeah, just go with that exactly. as, a, as a He marker. was somewhere between yeah. Shahid Afridi and Misbah Al-Haq's age. And if you don't get that joke, what we're saying is no one knows how old he was. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other guy, of course, was uh, he, who he was in contention up against was Tom Cartwright. As I mentioned earlier, average 19 with the ball took 1596 first class wickets, was a county cricket legend. But at that point in five tests, he averages have averaged 36 with the ball and did not have a good first class record in South Africa at all. Mm. So even though age wasn't on Basil's side, you'd have to say he had experience on his side. Mm. And also he was the better batter out of all three of these guys. Politics aside, do you think that he deserved to get selected on merit? Yeah, so Keith Fletcher at that stage was averaging 33 in first-class cricket and they were about to hmm. throw him in against Mike Proctor, Peter Pollock, um, John Tracos. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other bowlers that South Africa had at that point. But they had, you know, Peter Pollock was as good a bowler as his son probably or always hmm. maybe as good a bowler as his son is maybe the wrong way, but he was in his son's class um, Sean, for those of you who mm-hmm. who, who, who aren't as old as me or Bayram. Um, <laughs> Mike Proctor obviously would have gone on, uh, certainly in first-class cricket, was, you know, an all-time all-rounder. Um, you know, absolutely fantastic. John Tracos uh, Tr- Tr- uh, would go on to play for South Africa and then Zimbabwe 23 mm. years later. Um, so wow. that's how talented he was. And, and there are other good South African bowlers as well. You know, I'm not going to go through them all, but they had so much quality in their attack. I don't see how throwing in a young guy who averages 33 in first-class cricket was ever going to work. So if you're asking me if I was in that room, I would have been, you know, talking Basil's batting up. And, and Fletcher didn't bowl. Um, I will say that they had a really old team, a really old squad of like mm. 20, 25 players, and Basil was clearly older than most of them. Um, yeah. And so they, I do think they had a, they did want to move on and they did want to find some younger players. Um, but that 1966 uh, was South Africa's last series. They played against Australia. They beat them 3-1. They were a team, man. And yeah. I don't think that is the place to send a kid with a 33 batting average who he made mm-hmm. 1,400 runs or 1,800 runs or something in county cricket that year, Keith Fletcher, but a, an average of 40. He wasn't dominating. He was, you know, we're not talking about someone who who lit the game up and had to be picked. I would have thought that Basil was a very good chance of going in ahead of him. I, I think I said in the piece he was about a fifteen percent. I I think fifteen percent of the time you pick Fletcher, and about eighty five percent of the time you would pick um, Dolavira. Cartwright's a yeah. bit different because Cartwright is a bowling rounder. Mm-hmm. But when you look at Cartwright's record in South Africa um, and the kind of bowler he was. I can't see how he ever would have been successful as a frontline bowler. He didn't, obviously wasn't the batter of um, anywhere near Basil Dolavira's quality mm. of batting. Um, it's probably more of a 50-50 call. I think once you've got your squad together, mm-hmm. perhaps if you had Fletcher, you might pick Dolavira um, to match with Fletcher just because Fletcher, um, you're not sure about, so he went back up batting. Um, 
other other than that, you might go with Cartwright just because you need an extra bowler in that squad. It's a 50-50 depending on, on what mm. the rest of the squad comes out with. I don't think it's a horrendous thing for them not to have picked Oliveira. But that year in first-class cricket, I think Cartwright had taken 70 wickets at 14 or 15 or something. Something like that, yeah. yeah. And Oliveira had taken 50-odd wickets at 13 or 14. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, and an even better average. Cartwright was certainly a better bowler than him. But I don't think you could expect Cartwright to take more than two wickets a game in South African conditions with everything we knew about him as a bowler. And his batting was right. a third as good as Dolivira's. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Fletcher thing, let, let's forget everything else and just go, well, at once, would you pick a, a batter whose batting average was 48, who just made 100 in their last test match and taken mm-hmm. a valuable wicket over a... 23 or 24 year old who averaged 33 in first class cricket who had a year of making a lot of runs but at a low average who didn't bowl how many times would you make that decision but when you combine the two (laughs) decisions together you would have to say that i would over nine times out of ten dolivero would have been picked in that squad based on everything that we knew and the fact that he wasn't and oberon said it wasn't a terrible decision I think I, I think it's a very very unlikely. If you take the politics out, mm. n- let let I'll even shape it down. Eighty percent of the time, Dolivera would get picked, mm. right? But I think it's probably okay. closer to ninety ninety two percent of the time. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if I think about it from a team composition perspective, if I am looking for a bowling all rounder over a batting all rounder, then maybe Cartwright, yep. you know, gets uh, the go over Basil, but. We think of the English media today, right? Oh my God, Zach Crawley hit a four off the Ashes first ball. He's a champion, whatever. They make such a big deal out of the Ashes. Forget everything else. This guy in an all-important Ashes series in the final test match in a series where you were mm-hmm. losing, scored a ton. You won a game, a game. He also took a couple of wickets, right? Important ones as well. He goes just based on that rationale alone because if you're still doing that, right? If you're placing the Ashes on this pedestal, mm. And you're looking at Ash's performances and you're thinking those rank higher than performances versus other teams, then I would think that based on that alone, he needs to be on that plane to South Africa. But of course, then the Prime Minister, when he was by chance selected also, which was a funny story, well, it was Cartwright. Before we right? get there, let's just, yeah. let's just stop there for one moment. So what happens now is that all the cricket journalists have access to Info and to CrickBuzz mm. and sometimes the stats packages and, and things like that. Right. A lot of the stuff I did in here, it would have been available, but only to statisticians and scorers, right? Hmm. So it is a little bit trickier from that perspective. It, it takes me, it took me half an hour, what would have taken them a few days. But the more important thing is, and I think this is a really important thing from the politics, and I didn't put it in the final piece of ours just because mm-hmm. it was about the, the selection, but the reason that the media weren't completely on Basil's side is because the team were leak the, well, the team, the selectors, the MCC were leaking against him. Right? Mm. That first game when he was dropped, they were like, oh, "He made eighty-seven, but you see his bowling." Yeah. Right. The second game, you know, they were like, "But he hasn't made any runs in county cricket this year, and he's really old." And all these sorts of things were mm. happening. And I know this for a fact because I talked to um, legendary cricket writer called John Woodcock. He's not mm-hmm. as famous as a lot of the other cricket writers because he didn't write a lot of books, but he edited Wisden and was the Times cricket writer for a long period of time. And I met John. He was a lovely guy. And, you know, we'd had a couple of drinks by this stage and I just sort of casually mm-hmm. said, 
what side of Basil D'Oliveira were you on? And he just mm. instantly said, the wrong side. Okay. And I said, Honest? Yeah. And I said, I, I want to know why. And he said, look, I had so many contacts within cricket at that time and they were all telling me this wasn't political and that he wasn't up to it and he wasn't the right player to take on this squad. And I believe them. Mm. And it, it, that moment massively changed my cricket writing because that was the time where, because I, you know, you would get it too. You get DMs from coaches mm. and players and administrators and people within the game and they tell you things, but they've got an agenda. And at a certain point, you have to take what they say and maybe use it, but you also have to make sure it stands up. And that was my big thing from that point forward that I didn't want to be in a situation where that would ever happen to me. Even on, I'm, mm -hmm. there might never be another Basil D'Oliveira story, of course. Um, yeah. But even on a smaller thing, I wanted to know that if I made a mistake, it's because I analyzed wrong or I didn't get mm. all the facts or whatever. I didn't want it to be because I listened to people who were biased. And that was, that was happening. Not all. There were certainly journalists on Basil's side and very vocal ones. But there was a lot of people out there just going, this is, you know, not going to work. Um, uh, you know, he's not the right person to be picked. And But when that squad was announced and he wasn't in it, it was huge. And the backlash mm -hmm. was massive because I think most cr casual cricket fans were not like, oh, he only took two wickets in that first test match. And, you know, he's been struggling for Worcester. What did, what did a casual cricket fan see? What is it? What did, we saw what happened in the last Ashes with Piers Morgan and, and the Bearstow stumping and all those sorts of things, right? Yeah. They just thought, oh, that's disgusting. That shouldn't happen. Well, imagine what they thought mm. with Basil Dolorida. Del like, he made 87 and 100. He has to be on the squad. What are you talking about? Yeah. And, th and that was the other side that the cricket journalists were up against, right? Um, and there were certainly racist not just cricketers, but journalists in general that were anti-Basil and, and all that sort of stuff. But people around the world were like, how can you not pick this guy? And so suddenly you're in a situation where the only people that were happy really was the um, uh, South African government. <laughs> yeah, because originally when he wasn't selected, there was no problem. But then our man, Tom Cartwright, he pulled out of that tour. And you mentioned that there were a bunch of different reasons yep. that were put out there. We still don't know what the exact reason was, but... Basil was in and the South African prime Instantly. ministers went on. And, I should say, yeah. I don't know if I put this in a piece, but there was like, uh, Cartwright was out and almost instantly mm. um, Basil was picked. Yeah. And almost instantly, I suppose, the South African government or the prime minister, BJ Worcester, also laid claim that they can't do this and you can't, you know, gain political uh, objectives and stuff like that. And we aren't going to be let something thrust upon us on in this fashion, which ultimately then led England to boycott South Africa and Australia followed suit, albeit a few years later. But then, as we knew it, cricket just left the Rainbow Nation for what a good twenty-five years, I'd say. So yes, six. So Australia play one series after hmm. Basil Oliveira, which is a stain on Australian cricket. Um, yeah. They shouldn't have played that series. Sixty-nine, seventy, I think I want to say. Um, they played that series. They went to South Africa, and South Africa humped them everywhere. Even worse than 66. And then South Africa is supposed to tour Australia and Bradman wants it to go ahead. And there's a brilliant mm. thing that happens between Bradman and then future Prime Minister Bob Hawke where Bradman says, don't you think, Bob, that um, sport and politics shouldn't mix? And mm. Bob Hawke goes, yeah, they definitely shouldn't mix. And that is what the South Africans are doing. Wow. And that, that line changes Bradman's view and Australia 
don't play them again. Um, as I said, it's so confusing what happens because there's all sorts of weird things. So 1974, South Africa win the Davis Cup because India refused to play them. Mm-hmm. Although I would have thought South Africa would have refused to play them as well, but I, I don't know. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah, so <laughs> maybe they could have held out the Indians longer, won the Davis Cup by not playing it. I'm not sure. Um, there's obviously Women's would they World not Cup. Play, would they not play coloured sides because they were afraid of losing to them? Probably. Because beating them would push their narrative, right? Yes, but they wouldn't win every time, would they? Right. Yeah, you only need to lose to them once. And again, the, fa- mm. the facade falls down. Um, they had played against non-white people before, though. Um, I don't know if the Australian, there was a black Australian cricketer in the 1800s. I don't think he played against South Africa, but um, but I think there had been non-white players playing for England at, at times before. Not South African non-white players, so mm-hmm. most importantly. Um, but yeah, so I, I think, and, and also the government was different. They had more power. They were independent now and running right. themselves and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So so South Africa had changed as a nation as well. Um, obviously, the second Women's World Cup was... Uh, being organised to being played in South Africa, uh, which is a, a real blight on Rachel Hayo Flint, who's an incredible figure in cricket, but what a mm. fuck up that would have been. And she yeah. actually tried to get South African players into the other World Cup. Uh, there are South African players who play counter cricket, of course. There are South African players who play in the World 11s. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Kerry Packer's um, series have South African players as well. But yes, for all intents and purposes, the South African cricket team, uh, men's, um, and I don't think women's was very sh- big at that stage, but they ceased to exist um, in mm. international cricket. But it is a blight, certainly on Australia, that they still play. Like imagine having Basil Dolorera on the front page of your paper. And, and I think one of the headlines I read was like MCC and race row and all this sort of stuff. And all the stuff <laughs> I read from Australia and New Zealand were very pro Basil to mm. go from that to playing in South Africa afterwards was a remarkably stupid turnaround. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, they were a brilliant cricket team that from that period, we don't know how good they were cause they only played two series at home, but against Australia, who was a decent side at that point, you know, Barry Richards obviously played Graham Pollock. Uh, yeah. Dennis Lindsay was their wicket keeper. Um, Mike Proctor still was going Mike around Proctor, those days, right? Mike Proctor, you know, has an incredible record in Test cricket. Um, and all these guys, their stats stood up when they played in county cricket. You know, uh, mm-hmm. they're all next-level players. Um, you know, Colin Bland, uh, you know, is another – I think he was in – might have been in one of those series as well. Just Second time you've mentioned Colin Bland. Yeah. Well, I think he – Not in this one. I think yeah. he averages high you've, 40s. You've got him up as well. um, In Test mm. cricket as well. Like, just real – you know, incredible team. But we, was Colin Bland a brilliant fielder? He, is that the story? He's the well, he was thought to be the best fielder in the world at that. Point. There we go. Yeah. That's where I remember him from. He was the Jaunty before Jaunty. He was he was pre Jaunty, better bat than Jaunty as well. Mm, so you know, you've we know that that was a hugely talented team, but we don't know how they would have gone against the West Indies. Um, yeah, we don't know how they would have gone in England or in India or Pakistan. Cool. Even uh, maybe they probably would have beaten New Zealand, but they would still have had to go to New Zealand and deal with the green pitches mm. and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, Australian pitches, all these sorts of things. Yeah. We don't know how they would have gone, but my point would be that we also don't know how mm. how many players, non-white players, actually were great. The, the two famous ones are Basil Dolivera. There's another guy called Crom mm. Hendricks, which is, he's in the podcast, where he was a, he was a Malay uh, player as well, a Cape Malay player, um, so probably mm. a similar kind of complexion to Basil Dolivera. 
Uh, it's a very strong cricket area, Cape Town, of course, even now. Um, you know, Vernon Philander is um, Cape Coloured, and I think Ashwell Prince might be Cape Coloured as well. So they've had a few mm-hmm. players of that heritage in, in this era go on to play. I'm just picking two. There's a lot more as well. <laughs> but um, they, um, you know, we don't know how good they could have been, but Crom Hendricks was so good that in the 1890s he was offered a spot to tour with South Africa and play in England, right? They wouldn't. Oh, they wow. didn't want him to play at home because I think they wouldn't have got away with that. But he was so mm. good, they were going to pl- let him play in England. But in order to do that, he had to agree to be the team's valet slash butler. Ah, and Crom Hendricks and Crom Hendricks said no, which is incredible, right? And no one knows how good Crom Hendricks is because we have so little um, uh, record of him as a cricketer, and his name was spelt differently. And there's another guy that was known as Crom mm. Hendricks at time. Uh, there's all these random things and sometimes he wasn't called crom all these different things <laughs> we don't know how good he was but the point is that between crom hendrix and basil dolivera which is a what let's say 50 year reign 50 year mm-hmm. period 60 year period yeah how many other players were there that just we don't yeah. know about because they were legends in local leagues and they never came through not to mention all the players that if they'd been given proper facilities and training and played mm. against the best players and got sucked into the incredible talent machine that is South African private schools, um, what they could have been. And so it's all well and good to go, oh, that, you know, that South African team never got to prove that they were the best team in the world. Well, they would have been even better if they'd actually mm. picked all their best players rather than just the ones who happen to have the right pigmentation. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic parallel that you draw over there. And I mean, Basil Dolivera is exhibit A, or well, B, if you put in Crom Hendricks in there. But I mean, that's the thing, right? The amount of wasted talent just because of the color of people's skin. I think that is one of the big changes that South Africa definitely needed to see as a country. And, you know, Basil himself admitted that his best years were in South Africa, yeah. right? I, think that, I mean, that's, he wasn't as good. Yeah, I think that's the, from a cricket perspective, if you take the racing hmm. away from it, what, oh, yeah, of course. what could he have been? <laughs> like, what could he have been if, I don't know, let's say at 16 he's seen and he gets sucked into one of the cool private schools there and he goes through the hmm. proper system and, you know, plays against the yeah. other Cape Town players and, and then comes up. Like, how did he manage to be this good at – I mean, we haven't even talked about the fact we don't know how old he was. Uh, and we mentioned yeah. before, but we know he was either born – he said he was born in 1935. We know that's definitely not true. Hmm. He was either born in 1933 or 1931, 1927. Those are the, that's the range okay. of when he could have been born, um, which means that when he retired from Test cricket, he was probably he was definitely over forty. He might have been as old mm. as forty five, is my guess. Um, yeah. So we didn't see him at his best, but we also don't know how he became that good. Uh, he was just an absolute mm. marvel, um, and and I think it does show you. We know he dominated cricket in his area, mm. you know, with, with the other non-white players, but I do think it shows you that. You can't have a player as clever as him mm. without it being passed on to you, right? So, yeah, they, they watched some of the international cricket and they would have watched some of the first-class cricket and everything else. But I think there was a lot of those guys in those leagues, you know, taught him how to be a very smart cricketer on top of just, you know, using mm. his natural talent. Um, so there was something going on there for sure. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because we talk about, developing talent and nurturing talent but Basil got none of that and yet he played test cricket and he played 44 test matches you know 
not a lot of people get to play 44 test matches so that is indeed a very very incredible story and it's such an important one to even talk about i think in today's day and age like you said that when the blm thing happened black lives matter it kind of made you you know want to pursue something along these lines and tell this story but i guess just to end this podcast i want to talk about the overall impact that basil dolivera had not just on cricket of course the south africa england test series is called the basil dolivera trophy now so we can see the impact over there but even on the geopolitics of the world right mm. because this had gone international it's quite an impact and ultimately even though at the time when you know he was playing in a few decades after that a couple of decades after that there was no real impact but when the impact happened all of a sudden this is such a more you know inspiring story yeah i think there were obviously trade sanctions you know hmm. and trade sanctions are fine but they're kind of faceless and they don't really do that much and yeah they you know the olympics not having the south africans again is a big movement but again hmm. there wasn't a particular it wasn't like there was one athlete that became the face of that uh you know one way or another and especially within the commonwealth nations i mean most of the colonies right they have an affinity. Mm. We all have an affinity with each other, you know. It, Australia, Pakistan has an affinity with each other through cricket, but yeah. also just through being another country of the Commonwealth, right? And so yeah. I think there was a there was a lot of people that were sort of hanging on to South Africa in a way that was socially acceptable at that mm. time. Basil Dolivera suddenly there was a face to apartheid. And mm. it was a beautiful face. Like, I, I don't mean that he was a beautiful man, but I mean, he was a glorious batter to watch and he was an exciting batter to watch, right? Um, and he played this incredible innings when after everything that in, the MCC had thrown at him, let alone BJ Vorster and the spy at the Derby grounds, right? <laughs> you know, and, and the weird subterfuge that had been going on. He played this thing and you talk about it being cinematic and everything else. And so that all played out in public and suddenly there was a face mm. to put there and, you know, everyone knew the name Basil Dolivera within the cricketing world and sometimes even some people outside of that. And so it really made it much harder to publicly support South Africa from that moment mm. forward, you know, because you now were – the whole system was, was – it, it was always based on a lie. But, you know, perhaps with, especially within white, you know, societies, there was a bit of – you know, there was racism in massive racism in Australia. There was racism in New Zealand. There's racism in England. You know, it, South Africa is not the only country. Australia did horrific things. England colonized the world, and New Zealand had their own issues as well. Not quite as bad as the other two, but certainly had their own issues. But they were allowing South Africa to be to mm. to do this, and that was the that's the important change, right? That people yeah. no longer um, allowed them. And in a conservative sport and also the biggest sport in the empire at that time, it was a mm. very important thing to have that face on it. Um, and if it hadn't have been the Ashes, if Basil had made those runs against India or Pakistan or New Zealand or West Indies, mm. the Ashes, a big Ashes test, and he comes back and he saves the, the series for his country or his new country, and then he, you know, it becomes the face of a racial um, system that doesn't make any sense. All that sort of comes together in this one, you know, moment. And it's not like apartheid finished because of Basil Dolivera, right? Yeah. But the pressure that he put on South Africa and the pressure that then was put on South Africa by other countries because of Basil Dolivera is a fact, 
right? People mm. really, he recruited people to that cause, right? And yes, yeah. it takes 20 years. But what really happens is South Africa become an isolationist country not long after mm. Basil de Oliveira. And he played his part in that. And it was the isolation that eventually drove the country to, almost to a standstill mm. at times, right? And that is why eventually they had to come back into society, right? And he plays whatever what, – let's say it's 0.01% of it. He played his part in that, right? And it, maybe it's higher than that. I have no idea. There's no way of calculating yeah. these things. But cricketers don't do that, right? This is not a thing that yeah. happens, right? And so mm-hmm. it's incredible from that perspective to have a situation where a cricketer plays such a big part in what was in the 60s and the 70s and, you know, the 80s. The South Africa issue was, you know, it, was not, it wasn't quite the Cuban Missile Crisis and it wasn't quite the Cold War. Mm. When you go back and you read those old, you know, articles and South Africa's mentioned a lot, right? It's a major mm. news story and a cricketer for a big period of that time was the person who drove that, that story. Yeah, I mean, that's why the story of Basil D'Oliveira definitely needs to be celebrated. And, you know, if someone ultimately is watching this podcast and decides to go and make that movie, do include Barry Jarman. I think that dropped catch is where it changes. That's the butterfly effect, that moment that changed the world. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think that that should wrap this up. Uh, That'll be all for this episode of the Footmas Podcast. I'm Behram Kazi. You can find me at Def Mango on Twitter. With me was Jared Kimber. So, thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you once again next week. That's all for now. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orijoti Saina Payu and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Mukunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.